Take the guesswork out of your cannabis shopping with ECS DNA Kit by Endo Canna Health. I did this years ago and it continues to empower me to get nerdy with my cannabis choices, which you know I like. If you've watched our Cannabis Legalization News podcast, did you know that right now you can save 25% off your DNA test at endodna.com? That's E-N-D-O-D-N-A.com and use promo code POD25. That is P-O-D, the number two, the number five. Your purchase includes the EndoDNA Collection Kit. Endo decoded report, personalized cannabinoid and terpene suggestion, endo aligned product matching in your state, suggested dosage guidelines, and optimum methods of administration. Once you know your personal ECS data, you can shop endo supplements tailored specifically for you. And right now, Endo DNA is celebrating their new patent with a BOGO offer on their Afeka soft gels lineup. Since so many of you struggle with sleep, I want to highlight Afeka Unwind created to support healthy sleep cycles using a patented proprietary formula of hemp-derived CBD, terpenes, and essential oils. If sleep is eluding you, sweet dreams are made of this. So buy one, get one, my friend. You can shop online at endodna.com. And don't forget promo code POD25 at checkout to save 25% on your DNA test kit. What's up, everyone? It is 3 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon, which means you're tuning in to Cannabis Legalization News. Today, we are joined by Josh Kincaid from The Talking Hedge. We're going to get into creating the perfect pitch deck for your cannabis business. Uh, so let's just get right into it, unless you guys have some news to talk about. Yeah, there's always something to talk about. Yeah, you know, there's always something to talk about. And uh, thank you so much for joining us, Josh. We're going to be talking all about uh, pitch decks and where they fit in on your capital raise for your cannabis business. Perfect. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, Josh, why don't you familiarize yourself with the audience just one more time? Oh, I'm Josh Kincaid. I'm a capital market analyst with a boutique advisory firm called The Super Chronics. We help our clients either get capital or find strategic partners, create vertically integrated buyout opportunities. And a lot of that starts with the pitch deck. So we're going to talk about maybe the seven tips to a successful pitch deck, as well as uh, eight pitfalls to avoid. If we can get through all of that, you guys got to stick through all of it, though, to the very end. I've seen some of your previous ones with the uh, the attorney, the investor lady. Yeah, Katrina Glogowski is an angel investor and attorney. She's uh, put a lot of money into the industry from grows to tech, um, PR, you know, uh, magazines, you name it. So she's got a lot of experience. So I get her on the podcast at least once a month to dive through some pitch decks. We just did one for MedMen. And uh, you'll have to stay tuned for that one. That was a good one. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. And like, you know, Josh and I are actually going to be putting together uh, a course that we're going to be offering over at CannabisIndustryLawyer.com. Right now, we're kind of building the video content that will go on the top of this course. And so for that course, we're going to go through and we're going to create this type of pitch deck for the uh, putative, which means, you know, potential. It's an example, uh, 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 you know. Uh, vertically integrated cannabis company. And then so you'll see each one of these will be in a lesson. And I believe it's going to be a 13 deck slide that you guys can then download after you take it. So head on over to Cannabis Industry Lawyer and subscribe to our newsletter. And then you will get notice when we have launched the course. Yeah, the pitch deck is so important. I actually met uh, your friend, uh, again, her name Katrina. is Katrina. Katrina. Uh, I met her mm -hmm. at an investor uh, event years ago. I went to one. Uh, downtown Seattle, you know, you're on the top, the 30th floor, 
uh, it was a pitch event with Vuber and uh, there was a couple other ones. They were asking for like 1.5 million. And uh, uh, it was neat to see the presentation. It's kind of like your resume, right? Like you're asking people to employ you or rather give you money. Yeah, I mean, it's really important to kind of get everything in line and tell people what you want without, um, you know, like one of the funniest things I got recently, as a matter of fact, was out of a South American. I don't remember if it was Colombia or Venezuela, but this guy actually put in one of the uh, line items that he wanted $30,000 for a wardrobe and $80,000 for a car because it was important for him to look successful rather than be successful. <laughs> and so, and, but the other to... thing is who the heck is going to pay cash for that car when they could have just rented it and be like, okay, and also rent those clothes now take some pictures. The problem is I think Dan Blazerian has given the wrong impression of what's successful. I mean, the fact I don't that know, did was, did, uh, Hey, uh, Josh, did Dan Blazerian's uh, pitch deck ever come across your desk? No, I would love to see that though. And how he was able to spend $50 million on marketing. Cause if I can buy a yacht and slap on, you know, super chronics on the side of it and call that marketing, then Hey, sign me up. And the other one is MedMen throwing $26 million at a Hollywood mansion. Like, how were they not in prison? Because I never learned that in business school. Well, I still don't understand why they're paying full price for these things. It's not going to, like, hide the money any better. You know, it could have been a line item. And then you should have had a contract with another management firm. And you just suck the money out that way. But <laughs> but these guys are too too awesome to two things the, the correct way. So that's how uh, Warner Brother does it, as a matter of fact. Like if Harry Potter or any other movie, those people get no extra money because the, the studios will hook up, uh, they'll start another company and then they'll charge each other like hundreds of millions of dollars for fees that aren't worth anything. And then that's how you legally siphon money away so that you can't uh, make give dividends or profits or whatever. Right. That's right. Give us some likes and some thumbs ups for getting the real straight dope on how businesses downstream uh, cash flows to avoid tax liability. You get that here, folks. Uh, yeah. And that's why you're going to want to like sign up for this uh, course on, on pitch decks. We're going to break them all down. And so like one of the things that you wanted to, to start the course with is start with the why. What do you mean by that, Josh? Start with the why? Yeah. Uh, well, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, like, all right. So, like, you know, in your pitch deck, uh, what should you lead with? Oh, um, first thing I would start with is identifying a business plan goals. And I, well, I guess that's what you meant by why. Is like, why that's are right. you setting this up? So, essentially, if you don't identify your business plan goals right off the bat, instead you have like your. Um, you know, total addressable market. Like we don't care how many good billions of dollars the industry is worth. Tell me what you're doing. Identify your business plan goals so that I know immediately what I'm looking at. Mm. Word. So like, yeah. for, for a pitch deck though, is this for businesses who are already active or even for like a new business? Like, Well, it's a sign of the times, Miggy. And that's a good point because, you know, circa 2017, 2018, when we were doing the pitch deck reviews, it was okay to be pre-revenue. So if you had an idea, that's fine. But, you know, post uh, beer virus, that doesn't work anymore. So when I got a pitch deck out of Brazil and this, this guy wants to buy a license and then, you know, change the laws, like it's not even like federally legal yet. <laughs> Uh, it's not, like the side that's that's a wrong time. So right now you need to be generating revenue and even more importantly, you should be profitable. Yeah. 
Awesome. So uh, if we were going to stack a pitch deck for a vertically integrated startup, because a lot of the uh, future businesses in this cannabis industry is one state after another, and we're about to have maybe four more go into the legalization uh, states, uh, how do they put together a good pitch deck for uh, a vertically integrated cannabis company? I think in, so uh, that's going to be a majority of the seven tips to a successful investment deck. So looking at all of these things, I would incorporate all of that because it's important to um, not only have your uh, partnership, but also you want to be able to um, to hit the market. So if you if you know your audience and you can understand the market, but even more importantly, the team. Right. Most investors are going to want to know if you're vertically integrated, that you know what you're doing, you know who your target audience is, you've identified those needs and roadblocks. But even more importantly, that you you have a team to make that happen, because the amount of money that they put into MedMen as a multi-state operator and then found out that they had to fire the CEO and CEO and completely revamp that entire business. That's tough to do. That's hard to then reestablish that trust. Um so, well, and we got a question from from one of the people watching to ask if uh, do you need a business plan if you're not seeking investors? I, I would think a mission statement would be enough, but I mean, the whole purpose of a pitch deck is to get investors, right? Like the whole purpose of any of this is to to pull in that money towards you to get more whatever you're doing. Yeah, really, that's just a that's a roadblock that a lot of investors put out there to make sure you've done your own due diligence. They'll they won't look at a business plan, they won't read it, but they want to make sure you have it. Right. And you're going to create a pitch deck from that business plan. So really, if you don't know what you're doing and you don't have an exit strategy, it'd be like creating a restaurant without a menu. Yeah, I, I always kind of see the pitch deck as like, all right, let's 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 go 30,000 feet. Because if you can't get them with that, they don't want to look at any any deeper into that surface. And so, um, you know, the, the pitch deck will tell you what you're going to do in about 13 slides. And you can do it as a presentation in about 15 minutes. Uh, and then after that, your business plan, it depends on what is it trying to do. Is it going into a, a private placement memorandum? Is it going into an application for a license? And so then it's going to have a whole bunch of more compliance stuff built into it or or legal uh, uh, f- you know, requirements built into for it so that it can be uh, compliant with the securities laws. So, yeah, I mean, like... I, I just think it also helps the teams understand why they are there and what the one thing they're going to do. Miggy, you remember when we had Sparky on from Supercritical? Uh, I'm not sure. All right. Well, this the Sparky from Supercritical, you know, the guy who was uh, operating in uh, the Oakland area before 2005. That's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember him. All right. Well, he, he said, well, what, what were you supposed to do? Think about that one thing that your company does, and that's how you're going to uh, etch out your little market niche in there and sell your product. Uh, so that really uh, is something that you can achieve through uh, using a pitch deck to, to get to that aspect. So, Josh, what are the other aspects of your top seven uh, tips moving on from uh, that one there? So just to jump on the back of that, you have to know what sets the business apart. So we've already gone through number one, identify the business plan goals to know your audience. Number three is understand the market. Four is identifying needs and roadblocks, because if you haven't told people that you have issues to um to get through, whether it's regulatory or, or otherwise, then you haven't really thought out your business plan. And that also goes with number five, knowing what sets the business apart, because if you're not any different than the next guy, then why am I going to give you money and not him if it's a better deal? It's like going to the grocery store and looking at a generic olives versus you know a brand name olive and spending twice as much. If I don't know what the difference is, I'm going to go for the cheaper one. 
Yeah. I right. mean, it's kind of a stupid analogy, but you get my point. <laughs> no, I mean, that, at the end of the day, remember, this is an agricultural commodity. I mean, or like at least it's like artisanal strawberries, which isn't even a product. So, um, you know, you, you do have to be cognizant of that and your costs and then who you're going to sell to. And so one of the reasons why the vertical uh, plan is one of the more eye catching in the cannabis industry, it's like, well, I'm going to be able to make my product and then I'll sell it over there. Uh, and so like they, they can see the supply chain more fully, but that, that has to grow your team and your expenses by quite a bit. And so suddenly you're not you're not in like, you know, the small time money capital raise. Like in Illinois, we have crowdfunding in Illinois uh, and it's a four million dollar per year cap. You know, you're trying to get into a vertically integrated cannabis company. You're you're not under four million dollars. Right. Yeah. And that's also peace of mind, too. Right. Because if you're going to give somebody money, you want to make sure that they're not going to be buying clothes or a twenty six dollar, twenty six million dollar mansion. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that somebody is going to know what the state laws are. And that's why I have Katrina Glogowski's because she's an expert on compliance. Obviously, law is really important. And so having the team in order to make sure that you're able to go from state to state and then stay in business. Miggy, we've seen so many crazy things in Washington where they tried to cap concentrates at 10 percent, which would nullify the whole concentrate right. category and yeah. then shapes and colors. And so I've seen business owners spend an entire quarter of a year going through potential uh, legislation and, and legal issues that would affect their business dramatically. And then the bill just gets dropped. So they just wasted an entire quarter of a year uh, and, and that doesn't work for a small business. So you have to have a team that is able to keep moving forward, even when there's regulatory issues and, and hurdles that you have to go through. Yeah. Those regulatory issues that you mentioned too, it's funny how there's not more people involved in cannabis people, people who are uh, making money from this. That's I think what hurt Washington's medical, right? Everybody got happy in their little stores and was making their own money. But when, there was a bill coming out. There wasn't no like, hey, let's get our shit together and make it regulated. It was more like, hey, let's see what happens, which killed medical out here. Mm -hmm. And if more people in their states, because it's individual state by state, got involved in their regulation. Because we we're talking about before how one of the staples should be, you know, what are you doing for the community? What are you doing for as an investor? You know, what's the company doing for regulation? Mm hmm. Yeah. yeah. And the banking industry is required to do that. They have to put in a certain amount of hours into the community because they're kind of an e evil corporation. And so in order to get that perception management down and buy people's love, they either have to pay money or they have to put people in. And so when I worked for the banks, we were going to schools and, and donating money for the toys and fixing up hardscape landscape and, and remodeling schools. And they loved us, but none of them knew that it was required. They all thought that we cared, <laughs> that the bank cared. And the bank doesn't care. They just they are obligated to do that. And so I, I think that the, the cannabis community wants to do that. And I think that's the fundamental difference is that there's a lot of altruism in individuals that maybe shouldn't be in business as long as they have. Um, we're starting to see that with this uh you know, beer virus that there's going to be some capitulation and closing, and maybe that's going to create a lot more vertically integrated opportunities if you can stay in the game long enough to find that strategic partner. Beer virus. Bro. I'm trying to avoid the name. Oh, I don't want to get demonetized, so I'm 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 not using the pandemic word. Oh, oh yes, that was an interesting thing that uh, Miggy had once. Uh, he did uh, such a, a piece on the pandemic name thing uh, uh, earlier, and it started the trend. 
And then they, they took it down. And then later it turned off that like there was actually legitimate news stories, you know, showing um, cannabinoids and the anti, um, yeah. uh, you know, viral properties of that. Yeah, that was actually started by an ex NFL player, uh, Kyle Turley, who said that mm. very, very early on. And he was right. And I thought he was yeah. crazy for saying it ver- like out loud because mm. we all know that patent number six, six, three, zero, five, zero, seven has a neural protectant to, to hold heavy metals and other things from cross the blood brain barrier we all know that but once you say it you know especially during a sensitive time then people think you're crazy but now you have these these, you have scientists using those cannabinoids for the the pandemic issue and now he's not so crazy no i just say pandemic is probably the best thing for cannabis because it one has been labeled essential and two it's more people are learning that it has medicinal value Mm mm-hmm well, I mean, again, that patent is now expired. And so like the fact that there was a patent, which means it's 20 years, which is now expired, that says exactly that, you know, cannabis is an antioxidant neuroprotectorant, both THC and CBD. They, they disclosed both. Uh, and and what, what's, who's they? The United States government. They held their own patent through expiration. And so now that uh, cannabis is expired, can we get uh, the plant patent or like, uh, you know, could, you, could you get a plant patent on this because of that 6630-507 patent? Uh, would that is that something that would just totally destroy the market or is it more like a plant patent? So that's a that's a that's a concept for another show when we book an intellectual property lawyer. Yeah, but I'm definitely seeing a lot more pitch decks and a lot more investment intrigue from places that uh, are far flung. So I think that with the essential business designation that we're seeing, uh, coupled with places like northern France and Greenland banning alcohol because they're afraid that people staying at home is a danger to children. That was actually stated. And so I think CBD being a, a gateway into cannabis is drawing more investors and especially if people understand sin stocks and the inverse relationship they have during economic downturns, that's creating more investment intrigue. And we, we've seen 52-week lows on some of the stocks, again, creating some FOMO and interest and stuff. So I'm seeing a lot of pitch decks from crazy areas, um, South America, Europe, um, Asia, and they're all over the board. A lot What's of the them- PPM look like there? I mean, like, Christ. Uh, of course, then if we're just drafting this, well, because where is the investment dollar going? Is it going to France or is it going to like, you know, Nebraska? I think it's mostly in the U.S. I don't even think it's in Canada anymore because the the expectation is is six dollars and sixty three cents versus a dollar twenty three in the U.S. Meaning there's people in Colorado that can manufacture one gram for a dollar and change versus the publicly traded LPs that are doing it for over six bucks. So where would you want to invest your money right now? On the are dollar. You, yeah. are, you see, are you seeing more people invest, like wanting to be invested in actual, like the flower part or like the store part? Cause I think unfortunately, cause of like Washington, how we're horizontal, we're, you know, we made superstars out of store owners, which I don't get. But, you know, I always think the, the farmer should be the focus, the, the 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 actual place where it came from, right? Where my wine, the brewery, distillery, whatever the F it is, uh, those should be the ones that we talk about. But it's always the store or the the, the, the white label brand. Uh, are you seeing people like wanting to be more hands on with the flower? Because like that event that I saw with Christina, it was mostly the one the people using a, a um, Vuber. Uh, which is a vape pen. Two, there was another one, which was like a, a Bitcoin transactional type people. So it was all non-flower interactive people. Hmm. 
I am seeing so the Viridian Capital Deal Tracker is something that comes out weekly, and so I'm able to see both acquisition and M and A transactions. And so the transaction, uh, per, the number of transactions is decreasing, but the dollar amount per transaction is increasing. And there's more debt than equity. And then to to your answer your question, there are more investors going after the flower, but I feel like that's in areas like Colorado that are vertically integrated. So the two um, main acquisitions are still multi-state operators because of the assets or the collateral behind that. They still can get the buildings and everything, but people are going more and more after cultivators. Even though it's a commodity and commodities are generally a race to the bottom in terms of pricing, I think that maybe being the cleanest dirty shirt in the room and the lack of opportunities right now, like the market is bloated and speculative and people don't really know what to do with it. So they're like, I guess we'll just uh, we'll buy that, you know? So it's, you're seeing more and more grows being purchased. Yes. I mean, it's recession-proof price. Like you're talking about the sin, you know, mm-hmm. talk about before but it also depends on like how much more capacity and demand those grows are. So the, cause like cannabis doesn't scale all that easily in the sense that you have to grow the plant. I mean, like, sure you could, you can turn it out and you can have a surplus of flour, but it still takes a lot of, it's still quite labor intensive. Yeah. Uh, and so because of that, it's not like, you know, creating a piece of software and then it just works throughout wherever that, that portal is throughout the world. Um, is that one of the reasons why these demands for the cultivators is so high? Because the the market for it, it just keeps growing. And so that the pressure on the cultivators to continue to put out the flower is is increasing as well. And that just kind of like creates a, a throttling of that talent versus the the output. I think that's I think that's more optimistic than I'm willing to admit. I think a lot of it be, with Cureleaf, for example, is uh, agreed. And so 800 million, 900 million to buy these these brands and these farms, uh, I think is a way to have, whether there's intellectual property or otherwise, they can basically buy this and slap that price on there. Kind of like Weed Maps having an arbitrary $420 million valuation. I I don't think that um, they're buying it necessarily out of the hopes that uh, this commodity will be um, profitable long-term because nobody thinks like, oh, I'm going to go buy, you know, a a farm and and we're going to generate a lot of revenue that they want to buy a brand. But maybe the immaturity of, of the market, maybe there's a lack of opportunities. Um, I think that you, know, you look at um, uh, Canopy, they've written off three billion dollars. And so like they're they it off. Like that's the charge off. It's like what happened to that invested capital that we did, and then just we just passed. Oh, that's 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 next quarter's problem. And somebody's just taking a fat paycheck. But anyway, uh, one of the questions I wanted to get to is like, uh, what about like we, we touched on IP a little bit? Do we can we have like patent our our pitch deck? You know, can investors like steal our idea? Yeah, yeah, but. Um- so Adeo Rossi of the Founders Institute, uh, which is for investors, he's based out of San Francisco, and he says, no one's going to steal your stupid effing idea. He doesn't say effing, but I don't want to get demonetized. And right. I think that's great because, you know, you can steal an idea, but can you implement it? Like, if you don't know what I know, you can try and steal an idea, but you're not going to really be able to implement it to the degree I can. So, yes, they could steal it, but are they going to be successful? Probably not. True story. And then the uh, – for for. So business plans aren't dead. So at that event that I met Christina, because I asked people, like, I'm always inquiring about money. 
I just like money for some reason. But uh, I asked uh, her and a couple other people, when someone brings a, a business plan to you, what are you looking for? And one of the things they all told me, which it's hard for me to wrap my head around because I do this because of the social justice and all the other stuff, but an exit strategy. They, they said, hey, you should have an exit strategy. Uh, so a business plan is still needed no matter what though, right? Yeah, you still need to do it because again, if if you're creating a restaurant and you don't know what the menu is, how are you going to create the atmosphere, the environment? How are you going to uh, select a chef? And the chef is like your number one asset in a restaurant. So if you haven't created the menu, you can't move forward. And the same thing with the business plan. If you don't have an exit strategy, then you don't really know how to get out of the business. So if you don't know who your target market is, if you don't have a business plan, there's all of these things, including creating a, a, a summary. Number seven on the seven tips for a successful investment deck is to create a summary with a call to action. And so that's another thing. That's the exit strategy is uh, here's how much we want. Here's uh, the creating FOMO, essentially. This is why you want to invest. And that's really important. And you can't do that without a business plan. Yeah, you don't want to have to just be taking this pitch on the road. Well, they do that sometimes. They close one round of investing and they go to the next one. But um, sometimes the people, I think, can get addicted to raising money. And I think a lot of the people started with uh, a pitch deck that had a compelling idea and then a, a good team. Because if it's if you can steal somebody's idea and they're, they're kind of like uh, fungible in the sense that one idea could be taken and placed over there, but you, you can't have me do it. You know, you're going to have somebody else that's uh, on that team doing it and, and taking care of the actual execution of the deal. And so when you're looking at that team, um, it's really important that, you know, especially if you're vertically integrated, like who do you have that knows about retail? All right. Why? How much do they know about retail? All right. Who's growing? How much are they growing? How, security. All right. And so all these pieces need to come in. And then, of course, like if you had somebody who was financial, who's who's taking care of like papering all this? So we're raising this money appropriately. Uh, yeah. that's another thing that's, you know, is that going to be a member of your team? You know, um, it's, it's pretty interesting. And then that was, that was something that, you know, uh, one of the things that we were talking about earlier, all these types of slides that you need, we're going to go through the types of slides that we have in the pitch deck that we're going to be building in the course. Um, one of them we were joking, I was, well, cannabis is pretty much the only industry where it looks like you might need a whole slide for regulatory hurdles and or compliance. Because you might need to like say, hey, this is these are the market challenges uh, or the political challenges more than market challenges. Here's our strategies to uh, to to deal with each one of them. Yeah, no well, that's number four is needs and roadblocks and compliance is always the thing. You have to plan for the unplanned. You have to even if you're like in concentrates. Well, so there was a, a vape company in Washington. They started making pre rolls because during vape gate, what else are you going to sell? So you kind of have to plan for the unplanned. Well, you've also dealt with uh, Cecilia and her working around the uh, the CBD drink because now it's a little packet of powder when they uh, were trying to come out. Yeah. So August of 2018, Washington uh, followed California banning CBD beverages and she launched at HempFest. And then literally like two weeks after HempFest, around September 1st, 2018, Washington implemented that law banning CBD. So how do you pivot to stay relevant? You know, she ended up relocating to Nevada. A lot of people don't have that as an opportunity. If you have kids or a house or whatever, how can you just up and move to another recreational state? It's not really that feasible for the majority of folks. Yeah, just literally political risk. You could be out of business tomorrow or there could be millions of competitors tomorrow. Seriously, mm -hmm. Did you guys cover some really good pitch decks in the past? And I've seen you called some red flags out. What are some of the 
big standouts you've seen that people have done? Um, well, I think, well, so like the eight red flags for pitching to investors is the incorrect founding team. So uh, Ignite would be a perfect example. Is Dan Blazarian really the guy that you want to give $50 million to? Come to find out he's getting sued right now uh, because his dad was a scammer too. So his dad had to leave the United States for Armenia and he hasn't been able to come back to the United States. Armenia doesn't have uh, extradition. And so um, he was his, uh, Dan Blazarian's dad was actually running Ignite the entire time. Not Dan. Dan was just oh. with models on a boat. And so that he's in court right now um, because he defrauded $25 million and some other stuff. So, yeah, the number one red flag is make sure that you don't have an incorrect founding team, because, again, that's what investors are looking at. They're not really investing in, in the company. They're investing in the founders, making sure that the right folks to do the right thing. What do you think about high times? Uh, I think high times with $100 million in debt and being um, not understanding the market, not understanding the investors, which is number two and number three on the seven tips to a successful investment deck, high times has failed those. So you're going to charge people to buy the magazine when all of your competition is giving away for free. Does that mean you're not getting enough from your uh, advertisers? Uh, I think they are incredibly slow to keep up with the sign of the times. Uh, and they just kept with growing rather than switching to a consumer market with culture and dabbing and these other things. They just kept throwing out, this is how you grow. And YouTube has kind of fulfilled a lot of those needs and tutorials. So uh, I would never invest your money in high times. Just curious. I'm a subscriber. Yeah. And that's the other thing too. So number two on the, on the eight uh, red flags when pitching to investors is baggage. If you have a, if a lot of debt, and no vesting requirements for the owners, like people at MedMen, for example. And there's a messy cap table. I won't name names, but in Washington State, they took money from a, a famous investor, uh, and he had 200 investors underneath him. And so that syndicate makes for a very messy cap table. So when the company in Washington tried to get um, uh, more, God, how do I say it without, when they tried to buy other things, they weren't able to because they had to get signatures from the entire syndicate, meaning all 200 people on that cap table. So, uh, again, having baggage is something that people that investors aren't going to want to go after. Yeah. And, and then startups don't have those baggage, but also they don't have the assets. They don't have the licenses, you know, and so they think it's very difficult. So you see more conditional financing. Sure. You get the license. Then we might extend you some credit. Yeah. And so that's number three is you have to raise more money just to survive. So if you didn't go out and get enough money to begin with, then all of a sudden, you know, you need more money just to keep the lights on. Nobody wants that. No one wants to get diluted from every single time you have to raise capital. Uh, and then number four is crazy founder salaries. Like, are you seriously buying a $26 million mansion? Like what? Who taught you that? <laughs> that's crazy. Isn't there an accountant though? Like all these companies with CFOs and whatnot, isn't there one person that can just see a, a like raise the red bullshit flag as far as like, hey, we're raising more than we're actually creating? You know, like we we stopped looking at the creating the the actual business practice. This is why we got the president we got. The man didn't make his own business. He's been running his dad's money for just like Dan Bilzerian. In his defense, the president did make about $500 million in rights from the uh, the apprentice, which he promptly started laundering through real estate schemes. Gotcha. Well, yeah. Again, 
Show me the successful business. Show me the tangible Trump stake, Trump University, whatever the F. Show me something that you've done as a businessman with, because I mean, it's all about input output, right? Like, just like losing weight is just like making money. The more you got coming in, the more you have. Period. I feel like a broken record answering that question, Miggy, but it's, it. yeah, I pull my hair out because the lack of compliance, you've probably seen it, Tom, they don't really bring in good legal advice and they never bring in chief financial officers or financial advisors or, or you know capital market analysts. They don't because there's too much ego involved, in my opinion. I've seen it so many times over the last seven years where they don't have the right people in the right positions, especially when it comes to finance and compliance. It, it blows my mind because all of these people who think we didn't come from cannabis and we don't want to be a part of cannabis and we don't need to know what the industry is doing. And then on top of that, you don't have anybody who's going to hold you financially accountable. Really? Good luck. Josh, prime example of that was going on in Seattle this week. I mean, I hate to be a bearer of shitty news, but you know how we have Sean Kemp. This article came out. Ex-NBA, uh, right now they're, they're writing off this black-owned dispensary, cannabis dispensary owner, but unfortunately, he only owns 10%. And my point being is there's going to be a lot of backlash on this one store in a local community because of what's coming up right now. So just give it a couple week or two and you're going to have marches you're going to have shit going on out there because some dumbass was like all right let's just write off this guy's name i mean it was it sounds great but he's only getting 10 percent just for his name and they're writing him as a black cannabis owned owner it's not yeah well rick garza is on the liquor and cannabis board or he was and he admitted that there were two thousand businesses and many of them were black owned but now we only have i think 500 or less and so there are none and so that's really unfortunate and you know kind of a red flag if you ask me that all of these business owners that were doing very very well why were they forced to close why weren't they given the ability to transition from medical to the rec state and then you look at cases like this where sean camp might be getting 10 percent, or maybe it's even less like two and a half percent uh it's not it's not the right way to do it which is why we're seeing states like illinois implement social equity programs um, even though it didn't work in California when you had Ryan Conkle of Have a Heart going down there and buying, uh, a, a, working with a social equity applicant and then paying him off, or actually his business partner, and then selling it to High Times. So there's got to be a vesting period or some way to not defraud the social equity program and the applicants at that, for that matter. On top of that, the investors, because you're making shitty decisions and now people put money into you. That, you know, that's a great point because back to that whole example with weed maps and the $420 million valuation, number five on the red, uh, eight red flags when pitching investors, vanity metrics. Ooh. So if, if you just throw out some vanity metrics like, hey, we're $420 million valuation or our cost of acquisition, you know, cost per, per customer is is X or, you know, if you don't have the right return on investment, if you don't have the right valuations, uh, you're going to have shareholder lawsuits inevitably when the the price changes for weed maps they will get sued by their shareholders it's we've seen it up in canada when the stock price went down they got sued by shareholders and it's like you, you kind of were told that it was not 100 percent guaranteed uh, that it is risky and yet people are still throwing their money at it like it's a crap table yeah and they will they will go through your stuff and like they will fly spec all those investment papers that you used to say to raise that money to go after it personally because then you're going to say like i don't owe it to you the company owes it to you 
not me, the company. And then they're going to say, no, you, you raised it wrong. And so we're going to sue the crap out of you personally and all the other founders personally and try to go after all your stuff. And all too often, they don't understand key performance indicators. That's number six on the eight red flags for pitching investors. Not understanding key performance indicators for your industry. Um, if you don't understand the culture in cannabis, if you're part of Canopy or Aurora, that's written off $3 billion and $1 billion respectively, I would say you probably don't understand the culture. Tilray is one of those two. Brandon Kennedy doesn't smoke pot. He brags about it. And yet oh, he's God. one of the worst performing stocks out there because he's literally sitting and waiting for somebody like Coca-Cola or Philip Morris or whoever to buy him out. Um, and he doesn't understand the industry. He probably understands key performance indicators, but not as it pertains to the culture in the cannabis industry. And I think that goes and runs deep because how are you going to know what's trending if you don't know what's going on? Everybody wants to be the Marlboro or the McDonald's of cannabis, but yet the bar for the consumer is way up here. Yeah. And, and industrial assholes are way down here so yeah, but it's it's just most of the people that that govern these companies i think they have tears for fears that everybody wants to rule the world song just going through their heads like that's like their 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 life story they're like yes i'm in charge but um and that that just kind of allows them to be warped in their perspective of what's actually going on and they, they kind of fail to see well our key performance indicators, well, they meant they meant shit because you had no understanding of the market whatsoever because you proudly say that you do not use the product. Not sure how you ended up as the CEO, but you know, you did. Yeah. Number seven of the eight flags for pitching investors is just distractions. So when you have too many slides in your pitch deck and like a total addressable market and you go on and on about stuff, it's like we don't care about the gabillions that you think. Just get to the point. Keep, you know, stay on track, stay focused. Uh, and then finally, number eight is not asking for enough money, which is different than, you know, raising um, enough money to survive. No one wants to invest when you have to get money. The difference is, is not, uh, not asking for enough money to then dilute those shareholders. So, um, being focused and, and being concise, not having a slide deck that's 30 pages, unless there's addendums or things at the very end, um, keeping it very relevant uh, and to the point, I think is important. Yep. Well, let's uh, briefly touch on the lessons that we're going to do. I mean, so if you guys can find this courses backslash cannabis pitch decks over at cannabisindustrylawyer.com. So we're going to start with the intro slide and we're going to throw in some legal jargon on that, mostly just names and stuff. And then there's the what's the problem slide. Uh, your team solution, the business model, market overview, market and selling, cost and pricing, competition, team, social impact. That's something we haven't really touched on yet is that aspect of the um, pitch deck so that you could have in the cannabis industry in particular is this social uh, wellness and justice. We touched on it briefly with the banks, but the banks were like legally obligated as opposed to um, uh, like in Illinois, it was an optional social equity program. It turned out that everybody had to have those social equity points to even be in the uh, contention. But that's that's also something that you should have. And then there was also the competitive advantage, like AKA your secret sauce. Uh, and then a, a conclusion. So really uh, a tight pitch deck is really only going to have about 13 slides on it, right? Thir 13 is a good number. Yeah, I would be very cautious if you're going to go beyond 15. It better be really, really good. If you're vertically integrated, then I understand because there's a lot of aspects to touch on. But if you're an ancillary or a producer or a processor or a retailer, keep it to 15 unless you're all three, you know, then uh, be as concise as possible. I'd like to also point out, too, we're in a day and age and time of 
the cannabis industry where now everything's Googleable. Like the person you're looking up or doing business with, like there was a time frame where uh, the excuse was, well, we didn't know because there's no history on this person. There's no whatever. But we're at the point now where you can actually look somebody up and find out where they stand, what they've done. Um, and then again, this goes back to the culture. Um, and I like to point out that Josh and Tom, you know, right now I'm talking to two guys who've made money and successfully pay their bills off cannabis industry, you know, auxiliary stuff, right? I'm just the activist guy who just goes and cheerleads a lot of shit. So I really think that people should pay attention to you guys. Well, thank you. <laughs> I think it's important too to take a look at medical states because social equity programs are important and that's sort of what can drive, um, you know, the perception change, that perception management is really important. And so, uh, you know, Chris Martin of, uh, uh, Hempful Farms, I think, mm -hmm. and he's still able being in Arizona to give away RSO. And I think that's really cool, um, to be able to help medical patients. That's, that's where this altruism kind of comes from, right? That's why we're all activists turning into business professionals, uh, because we want to help people. So that's the foundation of it. And if we can incorporate some kind of uh, ability to help those medical patients and the community, I think it's really going to change the, the whole perception of cannabis being a lazy stoner drug to something that can be uh, an active cannabis lifestyle and performance enhancing drug, if you will. <laughs> well, there's a PGA video that just came out where they do talk about yes. cannabis. Did you see that one? I think you're the one who uh, posted that and I saw it. Yeah, oh, that was great. So what's the PGA video about cannabis? They actually just intellectually discuss like how it's really not. I mean, like, so it's like yesterday we did a video with Josh and CBD and I felt really good. And then, you know, it says like warning, maybe addictive to what feeling good to being better. Like what kind of world are we living in where I can't just be well, you know, and that's what the whole point in the PGA was like. So golfing to get into this epitome state of mind. Uh, uh, that's the whole thing, like a Zen moment. Uh, but now you're telling me if I can use a plant to get to that moment faster, that's performance enhancing, you know, to, to be happy. I don't know. Are there any warning labels on like McDonald's? You know, yeah. when does my egg McMuffin going to get a warning label? If the, the CBD needs a warning label, come on. Peanut, you know? Peanuts have killed more people than goddamn marijuana. Uh, now, I well, made the I made the comment yesterday about um, how the malls have this cinnamon company and and the fifty seven grams of fat that accompany that, and yet you you wonder why we're obese. That's almost three times the daily fat intake from one serving uh, for breakfast, for example. So if you get the sausage and the the cinnamon thingy and the drink, then all of a sudden you have like a hundred plus grams of fat and. That's crazy, but you don't have the FDA going in there and regulating that. In fact, I bet you can find farm subsidies and other corporate subsidies uh, that are coming in to make the uh, the competition for them easier. Mm -hmm. God, so yeah. bad, so fucking bad, man. Yeah, well, whole thing's rigged sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I would agree. It's not set up for the small person. You just saw Wells Fargo wanting to eliminate. Uh, matching their 401ks. And it wasn't the tellers that were revolting. It was the people making $250,000 or more that had a swift uh, feedback for uh, the executives. And then they immediately reversed course because of the backlash. And the backlash didn't happen from the people in the bank. It happened from the executives. And that's right. what's really unfortunate that we have to be careful in the cannabis industry to not allow. 
Well, yeah. the, the state of cannabis itself, too, because uh, in the medical states, you have people who have to have balls bigger than life to be involved in the industry, right? To, to, to step in front of the camera, to do anything, to say, yes, I, I agree that we should all be able to do this right, and not be villainized. We got to band together. I mean, it starts with a good uh, business plan and a good pitch deck and the solid founders and the right amount of money. And if we don't band together individually, we're going to fail. So maybe, you know, consolidation or forced, you know, capitulation is uh, a good thing. And then eventually these big companies are going to either lose popularity. Um, but once the market matures and we can have the equivalent of, uh, you know, these these craft brewers mm -hmm. where we have a discerning flavor that people actually want to consume. I don't want, you know, Tilray's weed. I want to smoke like homegrown cannabis, yeah. like really good stuff. Why do I have to like walk around a homeless encampment and be like, that smells so good? Right. How come I can't get blueberry muffin down the road? You know, I had to wait until Croptober and now suddenly, you know, the muffins are done. You're like, wow. That's amazing. You know, that's genetics, I, you know. I never smell anything from a rec shop and be like, oh, damn, that is fire. But every time I walk by a homeless encampment, I'm like, what are they smoking? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so funny. Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can we go to find and follow what you got going on at the Talking Hedge? All of your favorite uh, MP3, MP4 formats. Just look at the Talking Hedge or at the TalkingHedgePodcast.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thanks for tuning in, everyone. Make sure you like and subscribe to keep up with all cannabis legalization news. And tune in this Wednesday. We're going to be speaking with Andrew D'Angelo about the Last Prisoner Project. So that should be a fun episode. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Josh. Peace.